Aloha. How many of you have been to Hawaii before? All right. How many of you wish you'd been to Hawaii before? <laughs> if I have the power to make a motion that we have ASI in Hawaii one of these years, how many of you would second that? All in favor, say amen. amen. All right. I talked to Brother Steve backstage, and he said, let's make it happen. We do have a convention center there, and I know many people think of Hawaii as a place of vacation, but really it's an awesome mission field. People who are hungry and thirsting for the truth of God's word. It's always an undeserved privilege and a high honor to share God's word tonight. And I just want to thank God for that opportunity. I invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Isaiah chapter 58. Isaiah chapter 58. As we open God's word for the final charge of this powerful weekend together, the message I want to share with you is very simple. Stay on the wall. We're going to Isaiah chapter 58. It's a chapter that is written especially for those of us who are living during the time of the investigative judgment, during the antitypical day of atonement. And in this serious and solemn time, it's not going to be business as usual, for it is a solemn time for a very solemn work, a time for us to search our hearts and afflict our souls in preparation for the last days. And it's a, it's a time for us to be engaged in that special fast of unselfish ministry to others. And in the climax of this chapter, we find the prophetic role that God would have us to play in these last days. We're in Isaiah chapter 58. If you're there, would you please let me know by saying amen? amen. And notice what it says in verse 12. Dear Lord, we have opened your word. Now open our heart and speak to us. And we pray that the conviction will result in a deeper conversion of our lives. That you would truly bring revival that will result in the reformation and the restoration of humanity. Please speak now as our prayer in Christ's name. Amen. The Bible says in Isaiah 58 verse 12, And they that shall be of thee shall build the old waste places. Thou shalt raise up the foundation of many generations. And thou shalt be called, let's finish it together, the repairer of the breach and the restorer of paths to dwell in. Here in this very popular, well-known passage, we find that the primary role that God would have us to play in these last days is that of rebuilder, repairer, and restorer. But something only needs to be restored or rebuilt if it's broken. Now, how many of you know something about brokenness? I don't know about you, but I grew up in a broken home, a dysfunctional family. We never went to church. Growing up, I had no idea what was God or who was God. And without a solid foundation of faith and the walls of truth to protect me, I started making terrible decisions at a very young age. I didn't know what SDA was or ASI or GYC or ABC or other the, these other letters that mean so much to us. Totally ignorant of the things of God. And as a result, my life, like the text says, became an old waste place. Wasting my time and wasting my mind on drugs searching for something to fill the void within. That was me when I was 16 years old. But in that lost condition, someone came and knocked on my door, invited me to a Bible prophecy seminar, spirit-filled, Bible-based, lay-led evangelistic outreach. And I'm standing before you here tonight because in those meetings, God, the God of restoration, found me, and I've never been the same since. And I want to share with you, friends, tonight, you may be in the midst of brokenness, 
a broken marriage, a broken home, a broken body, a broken mind, a broken ministry, a broken church. But thank God that our God is the God of restoration. And if you're thankful for the God of restoration, say amen. amen. He is the one that restores what the enemy has broken. And thank God that his work is not to tear down, but to restore. And as we allow the Lord to repair the brokenness in us, it's then that he'll repair the brokenness of the world through us. For this verse not only describes our natural condition without God, but it also describes our supernatural commission for God to repair the brokenness of humanity, the brokenness of truth. And so it tells us that the primary prophetic role of God's people is rebuilder, restorer, and repairer. The book Desire of Ages tells us that the very essence of the gospel is what? Is restoration. And so those of us who are recipients of the gospel are called to be participants in a very unusual special work of restoration. But friends, I want you to consider with me that it takes no skill to tear down, but it requires unusual and great wisdom, commitment, and love to build up. Some of you may know that earlier this year my family were victims of arson. A thief came in the night and my family home was destroyed by fire. It was a terrible, devastating experience. The fire caused over $700,000 of damage. It could have easily taken our lives. That's the fire that our home uh, was destroyed by. And it was tragic. We made it out just in the nick of time. It could have easily taken our lives. Now, thank God we're all safe. We all made it out and everything that can be replaced is gonna be replaced. Thank God for fire insurance too, amen? <laughs> But there are so many blessings in the blaze. One of the blessings is that I was able to speak to the entire state of Hawaii across three television news stations about 15 minutes after the fire was extinguished. I was on live TV, and because I knew there was live TV, I knew they wouldn't cut me off. So I just kept talking and talking and talking about Jesus. I was saying, you know, it's a mess in there, but God can take a mess and turn it into a message. We're victims, but God can take a victim and make them a victor in Christ. And anyway, you know what I said? I said, you know what? By the way, this whole world one day is going to be on fire. But the Bible says, he that does God's will will abide forever. Amen? <laughs> now, I, I never thought when I went to bed that night that in a few hours, 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning, I'd have the chance to speak to my entire state. But God does wonderful things. Amen? And by the way, you can see the whole news report if you go on our YouTube channel. Just type in blessings from the blaze, and you can see the whole thing. It's, it's a powerful thing, the Lord. What the enemy meant for evil, God turned it around for good, and it just gave us more fuel that if the devil's going to bring destruction to us, we need to bring destruction to his kingdom. And the only way we can do that is by lifting up Christ. Amen? And so right now, we're in the rebuilding process, the restoration process. And I learned that restoration is a process in two phases. Demolition and rebuilding. You see, before the home can be rebuilt, the damaged interior of the house needs to be torn down. And it took the demolition crew just one week, but it's going to take the rebuilding crew several months. My friends, it takes no skill to tear down, but it requires great wisdom, commitment, and love to build up. And that's the same with the restoration work of God. My friends, in our world today, there are many spiritual walls that must be torn down. Walls of selfishness and sin and spiritual lies that separate us from God and one another. 
as Protestants, God is calling us to cry aloud and spare not and to lift up our voice like a trumpet and call sin by its right name. And the reason why is because before the truth can make us free, we first must know the lie that holds us in captivity. There are many spiritual walls that need to be torn down, but friends, you realize that there are some ministries within the church that spend most of their time in tearing down and they spend little time in building up. People who are so con consumed with the counterfeits that they rarely talk about the truth. People who are so focused on the beast that they end up losing sight of the lamb. We, sometimes we can emphasize all the rules and the reforms without pointing to the relationship that gives us the power. We forget that our religion is not a negative religion consisting in various prohibitions. Ours is a positive religion that offers something better than what the world offers. Amen? And that's the watchword of Christianity, of all true education, something better. But then there are those who like to air out all the dirty laundry of the church for the world to see on YouTube. Ministries and individuals who seem to rejoice over the evils that they see and they're eager to publish it to the world. They, they're, in the, they're in the business of tearing down instead of building up. These are end-time Pharisees who live to criticize the faults and the mistakes of others. And unfortunately, they use it as an opportunity to line their pockets with tithe money, thinking that they're doing the work of God, and yet they're revealing the fruits of the enemy who seeks to divide us, deter us, and distract us from the work of restoration. Friends, listen, especially those of you who live in Orlando, not everything that glitters is gold. Not every rainbow represents the promise of God. Not every preacher is telling the truth. Not every church is the church of God. Not every biblical counselor will offer you biblical counsel and keep your business a secret. My friends, God has called us not to tear down, but to build up. And not every worker for God is doing the work of restoration. God has called us to do that work. Amen? And so, what does that mean, practically and prophetically? If our primary work is not to tear down but to build up, what does that mean? It takes no skill to tear down. It requires great commitment to build up. What does it mean prophetically and, and practically? Well, I want to look at that a little bit deeper. As we consider the context of this Isaiah 58 commission, if the sacred record tells us that the context is this. Because of the abominations of Israel, the kingdom of Babylon would invade Jerusalem and bring desolation to the city. The walls were breached, the temple was burnt, and God's people were enslaved in Babylonian bondage. But after many decades of desolation, God opened the way for a brand new beginning. After 70 years, Babylon is fallen. And now God was calling his people to come out of her. It was time to go back to Jerusalem to be engaged in the work of restoration. And so they went back. You know the story. Eventually, the temple was rebuilt, but there was still a breach in the wall. Even after three Persian decrees, the work was not yet finished. There was a breach in the wall. And for a time, God's people ceased the work on the wall. The work had begun, but it wasn't finished. And my friends, as we think about this ancient story, let us remember the Bible tells us that which has been is that which shall be. There is deep prophetic significance of this story for us in these last days. For in the year 1844, 
a mighty prophetic movement began. The, the first angel began to cry out that the hour of God's judgment is come. In that prophetic year, the first angel gave that message. The time had come for the sanctuary in heaven to be cleansed and restored. It was time to follow Jesus into the most holy place experience. But as that message went out, those who rejected that message and did not follow Jesus into that experience, they ended up falling into Babylonian confusion. And when that happened, the second angel began to sound. The second angel said, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. God was calling his people to come out of the fallen churches of Babylon that had rejected the first angel's message. And those who came out, you know, you know when you come out of something, simultaneously you're com coming in to something else. Coming into what? The final prophetic movement of destiny that God had risen up for such a time as this to finish the work of rebuilding the breach in the wall of truth. And so the third angel began to cry after that. The third angel saying, here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Here is a movement, a church called to preach the pure, complete gospel message of restoration in awe of the world, like the Jews of old. It was a movement called to rise up out of Babylon, to rebuild the sacred temple of God's sanctuary message, and to finish the unusual work of restoration. And so, in 1844, the wonderful work of the last days began. Our forefathers of faith laid a solid foundation of truth for our feet. They began to publish and preach it to whomever would listen. And from humble beginnings, this movement spread rapidly to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, the walls of truth were being rebuilt and the prophetic paths were being restored. But 170 years have gone by since then and there is still unfinished business. The work is not yet done. There is still a breach in the wall and Jesus has not yet returned. Our faith has yet to meet our eyes and we are still waiting for the return of King Jesus. But here's the good news, friends. What the three angels failed to finish in the 18 and 1900s, the fourth angel, Revelation 18, will bring to completion. It's, this is the fourth and final decree that will finish the work upon the wall. And so it's in this context that God rose up a man of opportunity, a simple layman used by God to initiate a powerful revival that would bring the finishing of the work upon the wall. And my friends, his story, his story points us to three essential things that we need for a finished work now. And those three things I want to give you right up front, the three things are these, focus, fusion, and faithfulness. Focus, fusion, and faithfulness. For the sake of time, we will summarize his story. His name, Nehemiah, it means Jehovah comforts. He was a spiritual giant amongst the people. He wasn't a prophet. He wasn't a priest. He wasn't a king. He was a simple layman, one of the thousands of Hebrew captives, exiled as a stranger in a foreign land. But divine providence had led him to the place of privilege and position in the kingdom of Persia. He was the king's cupbearer, a position of great responsibility and trust. He was granted the privilege of living in the comfortable palace of the king. But in that comfortable palace, Nehemiah could not be comforted 
the luxuries of royalty and the financial securities of the kingdom offered to him no rest at all. For how could he rest when his city was in ruins and his people were enslaved? And so the comfortable palace was not a place to be desired while his people were lost. My friends, Jesus feels the same way about you and me today. And so Nehemiah, I can imagine, he began to think to himself, there's got to be more to life than this. He began to think to himself, I'm, I'm sick and tired of business as usual. He began to sense a higher, holier calling upon his life. He began to realize that he was created for something more than what he was doing, more than just living in the palace and giving juice to the king. And the fact that he was not living out his divine purpose and reaching his full potential was a heavy burden on his heart. And my friends, as we think about the life of this layman of old, the question comes to us tonight. What burdens you? What keeps you up at night? What troubles you? Do you have a burden for the unfinished work of God? Or are you burdened by things that don't really matter in light of eternity? Concerned with your own comforts, absorbed in your own agenda, captivated by your own career, engrossed with your own goals, while all the while the house of God and the walls of truth are broken down. My friends, listen carefully. We were created to live for something more than ourselves. We were created to live for something more than just the nine-to-five job, the status quo, the typical, the usual, the ordinary, and the common. Desire of Ages tells us that higher than the highest human thought can reach is God's ideal for you. We were created for the glory of God and the blessing of others. And this divine call was placed upon our lives at the moment of conception. Somebody said it like this, your job is what you're paid for, but your calling is what you're made for. Don't allow your job to be an excuse to neglect your call, but allow the Lord to use your job as a means to fulfill that call of glorifying God, blessing others, and rebuilding the walls of truth. For only as we live out that call will we truly find comfort rest and satisfaction in life. Amen? So Nehemiah understood that he wasn't called simply to stay and enjoy the luxuries of the palace. He wasn't called to do something that the irreligious could have easily done. And as the conviction of his call grew stronger, his spiritual focus grew clearer. He began to focus on living for a cause that was greater than himself. And by the way, friends, he didn't need a title, a position, or a paycheck to do it. All he needed was simply a greater cause to live for and even a cause that was worth dying for. Can you say amen? amen? My wife and I have the privilege of traveling and doing evangelism all over the world, and it's a wonderful privilege. But before we started our, our uh, supporting ministry of the church a few years ago, we were blessed to work in the conference as conference evangelists and doing literature ministries, and we were there for at least 12 years and had a wonderful time. About 10 of those 12 years, we were on the ordination track. But unfortunately, because of certain church policies, we're not, we were not able to be ordained. And you know, for a while, that bothered me. But I began to realize that, that, that God can use all of us, and we don't need a title, position, or a paycheck. We just need something to live for, and God is going to do something special, very unusual in the last days. He's going to call 11th hour workers from the plow to the pulpit to do a mighty work, and as the book Great Controversy tells us, these will not be qualified by literary institutions, but rather by the unction of the Holy Spirit, and that's what we need now, friends. 
And Nehemiah understood that. And so just like a bald eagle whose eyes were fixed on his prey, Nehemiah began to focus on living for a cause that was greater than himself. And as a humble layman, he did a work that others had neglected to do. Friends, I want to be like Nehemiah. How about you? Amen? So Nehemiah did two things. Number one, he knelt down in prayer. And then number two, he got up off his knees and he offered himself as the answer to his own prayer. My friends, Nehemiah didn't wait for somebody else to move before he did. He took the responsibility upon himself. Nehemiah knew that when prayers go up, wisdom and power and blessings come down. He had a here I am, send me kind of attitude. And like Nehemiah, today perhaps you feel like there's nothing happening in your local church. Perhaps the services are lifeless and the, ser- and the sermons are stale. Or maybe the attitude of some of the church members are as cold as an Arctic winter. Or maybe the outreach of your local church only extends to the borders of the church property. Oh, friends, when you look upon the broken walls, you just got two options. Either you're going to sit down and complain about it, or you're going to kneel down, then stand up and do something about it. God calls us to do the, la- the latter. He's looking for someone, friends, who are dissatisfied with business as usual. He's looking for just one who will stand up and be an agent of change in their community. And so, my friends, if there's a work to be done, do it. If there's something that needs to be said, say it. If there's a message to be given, give it. If there's a need that needs to be supplied, meet it. If there's a check that needs to be written, write it. If there's a position that needs to be filled, fill it. If there's a promise that needs to be claimed, claim it. And that's exactly what Nehemiah did. He knew that if God would open the doors, he would also provide the means. Because if it's God's will, it's God's bill. Amen? And indeed, the doors were open. The means were provided. And so he went back to rebuild the broken walls of Jerusalem. I want to be like Nehemiah. How about you? And upon arriving in Jerusalem, Nehemiah did something interesting. He didn't begin the work right away. The sacred record tells us that Nehemiah took the first three days simply to pray, to observe the condition of the work, and simply to pray because Nehemiah understood that this was no ordinary endeavor. It was an unusual work that required unusual wisdom and power. And so when Nehemiah came to Jerusalem, you have to understand that he came invested with the authority of the king of Persia. He had the power and the position and the resources to begin to order the people of God to start working. But Nehemiah wasn't a dictator, nor was he a micromanager. He was a true lay leader. He did not use his position or his resources to boss people around. Instead of giving dictatorial commands, he simply gave an, an appeal to the heart. Why? Because Nehemiah understood the second thing that we need for a finished work now, not only individual focus, but Nehemiah understood that in order for the work to be finished, there had to be corporate fusion. Not only focus, but fusion. He knew that the work could not be completed from the top down, but rather from the bottom up. The people needed to catch the vision. They needed to own the endeavor. So instead of enforcing their hands, Nehemiah sought to win their hearts. Why? Because a union of hands and heart between the laity and the clergy was essential for a completed work. The same is true for us today, friends. My beloved brothers and sisters, we need one another in order to finish the work. 
Our mission is called the Great Commission, not the Great Competition. And the word commission is two words. It's, it's, it's a mission that, is, that requires the cooperation of two or more parties. As self-supporting ministries, we need the support of the church. And as a church, we need the work of self-supporting ministries. We can't do it alone. We need one another because the fiery fusion of unity results in spiritual synergy that will finish the work, friends. That's what we need to be praying for. There are some people that I can reach that you may not be able to reach. Surely there are people that you can reach that I can't reach. But if we work together, we can reach the whole world. Amen? Amen. United we stand. Divided we fall. And so, friends, let us stand upon the wall and let's do it together. Amen? So Nehemiah got connected to God vertically. And then when he went to Jerusalem, he got connected with the people of God horizontally. And friends, when there's a vertical connection and a horizontal connection, what do you have? You have a cross. This is what I like to call cross-centered unity. It's not an ecumenical unity. It's a cross-centered unity. Unity And friends, wherever there's a cross, there is death to self, selfishness, sin, and spiritual pride. And it is cross-centered unity that is the prerequisite for finished work because it's the self-sacrificing love demonstrated upon the cross that's going to win the world for Christ. And so the record tells us that the people of God began to work as one man, a mighty movement to finish the work. But then the record tells us that there was a three-fold union that united together to try to stop the work upon the walls. You can read it in Nehemiah chapter 6. Their names, Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem, a three-fold union. They came together, and they united, and they tried to get Nehemiah to come down from the wall. They said to Nehemiah, come, let us meet in such and such a place. And it seemed like they wanted diplomatic relations, an ecumenical truce, so to speak, but the real agenda, get Nehemiah off the wall and cause the work to cease. But the Bible tells us that Nehemiah would not be called down by compromise. He allowed nothing to distract him from his duty. Faithfulness was more important than compromising with the enemy. And so he simply said, I can't, I'm doing a great work. I can't come down. Why should I come down and cause the work to cease while meeting with you? And so he continued faithfully upon the wall. And the record tells us that the wall was finished in 52 days. How many days? Because there was no breach in their unity, there was no breach in the wall. My friends, what does this have to do with us today? Listen very carefully. Today, there are multitudes of forces, both seen and unseen, that are uniting together, seeking to get, get God's people off of the wall of truth, the wall of mission, and the wall of love. Coalitions are uniting to call us down in compromise so that the walls of truth may be demolished. And in this age of compromise, I urge you, friends, don't fall, stay on the wall. Just as there was a threefold union that united against Nehemiah, so too does the book of Revelation predict a threefold union that's going to unite to try to stop God's work, the dragon, the beast, the false prophet, that's spiritualism, Catholicism, and apostate Protestantism. And, and friends, these are the movements that are already united together. An ecumenical movement that mistakenly looks upon the walls of truth as divisive and a barrier to unity. The loud cry of the apostate churches of the world is, tear down this wall. 
Forget about absolute doctrinal truths. Just give us love, they say. We don't need the truth as long as we have the spirit, but it's a counterfeit spirit that leads to a counterfeit truth. And my friends, as we see the prophecies of Revelation 13 being fulfilled before our very eyes, and as the world gathers together and is following the beast, I urge you, my friends, don't fall. Stay on the wall. Today, we live in a world where human reason is being exalted above divine revelation, a time where humanism is getting a foothold in many churches, where church members are rejecting absolute doctrinal truths, and they're replacing it with subjective personal experiences that the devil can easily manipulate. A time when emotionalism is taking the place of deep searching of heart, a time when theatrics are taking the place of the preaching of the pure Word of God. And friends, as we see multitudes being swept away by the current of religious relativism, I urge you today, friends, don't fall, stay on the wall. Today, we live in a world of mass media distraction. Internet and television and social media, all of these sound bites and flashing lights demanding our time and diverting our attention from what Jesus is doing for us in the sanctuary above. And as the enemy seeks to desensitize us by worldly attractions and distractions, I urge you, friends, don't fall. Stay on the wall. And then there's the virus of dry religious formalism infecting the church. Religious distractors major in the minors and minor in the majors and they forget the weightier matters of the law like love justice and mercy in the land of Laodicea many people are becoming comfortable in complacency lazy in lukewarmness and rigid in self-righteous formality we boast that we have the right answers but all the while we lack the right spirit our heads are full with the theory of truth, but our hearts are empty of the person of truth. And, as the, and we're like the Pharisees of old, sometimes bringing that adulterous woman to, to Jesus, calling sin by its right name, wanting to uh, accuse her, quoting the law, calling sin by its right name, while all the while their own hearts were more guilty because of their pride and self-righteousness, more guilty than the one that they're ready to throw st stones at. My friends, as the, devil is, as the devil is trying to knock us down into the ditch of legalism, I urge you, don't fall. Stay on the wall. Then there is that other equally dangerous ditch on the other side of the wall called liberalism. The idea that God is not particular and that he has no standards. It is the gospel that cheapens the expensive grace of God and makes it a license to sin. It is a one-sided one preaching, one-sided uh, programs and projects that, that, that try to divorce God's love from God's law. It tries to separate Jesus from prophecy and prophecy from Jesus, mercy from justice and justice from mercy. But these two should never be separated. What God has joined together, let no man put asunder. And so as the devil is trying to knock us down into the ditch of liberalism, I urge you today, friends, don't fall. Stay on the wall. As the devil seeks to divide us with rigid legalism and loose liberalism, the solution is not to try to avoid one another on either side of the wall, but for each of us to come up higher, to let Jesus lift us up on the wall of divine love, for it is upon the wall of love that we learn the perfect blend and balance with justice and mercy, the beautiful balance of spirit and truth. And so, my beloved church, let's stay on the wall together. Let us love one another. 
Let us work together to finish the work. Like Nehemiah, let let it be our cry. We will not come down from the wall. When someone mistreats you you and you feel like getting angry, stay on the wall. When there are terrors in the church that make you feel like leaving the church, stay on the wall. When you go through tragedy and you don't understand why, stay on the wall. When life becomes overwhelming and you feel like giving up, stay on the wall. When your own carnal flesh is pulling you into forbidden waters, remain on the wall. My friends, as we finish ASI and get ready to go back to our respective fields, let us remember that a finished work in this generation requires three things. Number one, unusual focus. Number two, unusual fusion. And number three, unusual faithfulness. How many of you see your need today of God's focus, fusion, and faithfulness? How many want to say, Lord, help me to remain on the wall? Now as we close, what enables us to remain on the wall? My friends, it's because Jesus remained on the wall for us. While the walls of humanity were broken, Like Nehemiah, Jesus could find no rest in the heavenly palace, so he came to the world to rebuild the broken walls. But in the garden of the olive press, Jesus was pressed to come off the wall, tempted to abort his mission and return to the heavenly palace, but Jesus remained on the wall when he said, not my will, thy will be done. But then upon Mount Calvary, Jesus was tempted to come off the wall. Notice what it says, Matthew 27. Those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, You who destroyed the temple and what? Build it in three days. Save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. My friends, what was Jesus doing on the cross? He was building something. He was rebuilding the broken walls of humanity. And as humanity was tearing down divinity at the cross, divinity was rebuilding humanity. You see, it takes no skill to tear down, but it requires great wisdom and love to build up. That's what Jesus demonstrated at Calvary. And then they began to attack his faith in his father. Matthew 27, 43 says, he trusted in God. Let him, the father, deliver him, that is the son, if he, the father, would have him, the son. For he said, I am the son of God. My friends, you understand what they were saying here. What they were saying was this. Not only do we not want you, not even God wants you. If God wants you, he would deliver you. But the fact he's not shows that that, that even God has forsaken you. God hates you. God has cursed you. He despises you. He has left you. He's given up on you. So you might as well give up on him and come down from the cross. Save yourself. Save self. Save self. Has the devil ever whispered that in your ears, friends? This was the agonizing temptation of Christ. We will face a similar temptation in the last days. A time where we as God's people will be forsaken by man and seemingly forgotten by God. A time when the whole world will be against us and heaven will be silent. And in that crisis hour, that which we need to remain on the wall is the faith of Jesus. What was the faith of Jesus? Listen, listen, listen. Christ understood that in tempting him, without realizing it, they were actually fulfilling Bible prophecy. When they said he trusted in God, let God deliver him, They were actually quoting from a messianic prophecy in Psalms 22 and verse 8. He trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delights in him. 
And so as the people tempted Christ by quoting verse 8, Jesus overcame the temptation by quoting verse 1. He said in verse 1, he, he quoted this verse, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? You have to understand, friends, that that was both an interrogative and a declarative statement. Jesus was asking his father why he had forsaken him because that's exactly how he felt. But in asking that question, Jesus was also declaring that even though I feel like you have forsaken me, Father, I will not forsake you. Jesus didn't say, God, God, why have you forsaken me? He said, my God, my God. In other words, Father, even though it seems like I am no longer yours, you are still my God. My, even though it seems like, like you've left me, I will not leave you. I will not give up on you. I will stay on the wall. It was as if Jesus was saying, I'm doing a great work. I cannot come down from this wall. And so Jesus clung to the old rugged cross. And by doing so, he was guaranteeing the finishing of the work of rebuilding broken humanity. And if you're thankful for the Lord Jesus, let me hear you say amen. amen. And guess what happened 52 days later? How long did it take Nehemiah to finish the wall? Guess what happened 52 days after the cross? The day of Pentecost was fully come. And power was poured out on the early apostolic church. And because there was no breach in their unity, there was no breach in that wall. Jesus remained on the wall for you. Will you remain on the wall for him? I want to stand up and be counted. How about you? Amen? Amen. So allow me to finish with some good news and some bad news. The bad news is this. Our adversaries are great. Our obstacles are many. Our resources are limited. Our numbers are few, our faith is weak, our doubts are strong, and our carnal flesh is powerful. But here's the good news, friends. Our God is almighty. His power is unlimited. His wisdom unmatched. His resources are infinite. His grace is sufficient. His love is eternal, and his presence is with us. And so we can't lose when Jesus we choose. We have no reason to fear when Jesus is near. And we will not fall from the wall. What upon Jesus we call and surrender our all. And so today, if you want to say, Lord, help me to remain on the wall, I invite you to stand to your feet where you are, quickly. As we close in prayer, why don't you put your arm around the person next to you? And let's make a wall of prayer, shall we? Let's hold one another as God holds us as we close ASI 2018. And our prayer simply tonight is this, Lord, forgive me for my fall. Help me to live out my call. And give me courage to remain upon the wall. Let us pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much, Lord, for your amazing grace and your marvelous mercy. Thank you, dear God, that you sent your beloved son and that you, Lord Jesus, were willing to leave the comforts of the heavenly palace to rebuild broken humanity. Thank you, Lord, that you did not come off the cross. You, you remained on the wall for us. And now, dear Lord, we pray that you please forgive us for the times that we have come off the wall, for the times that we were so absorbed in building our own houses when the work of the gospel wasn't finished. Lord, I pray, we pray, that you'll give us 
focus. You give us the fire of fusion. And you give us unwavering faithfulness. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We commit ourselves to you again. Give us strength now as we leave. Keep us in your grace. In Jesus' name we pray that all of God's end-time Nehemiah's say, Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.